You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hoopy, what's happening, man? Hey, Greg, it's uh, it's Friday for those that are listening. And uh, yeah, it's like we got a nice little agenda today to cover. And uh, just I go out next week for audits. It's been a while for me, so I'm looking forward to that and being with a couple of our clients next week. And other than that, also looking forward to the weekend. How about yourself? Yeah, just got back from auditing. Uh, it's a busy time of year. This is like historically mm-hmm. our busiest time of the year is that right yeah normally i would say november is normally our busiest month this year it happens to be october so we are right smack dab in the middle of busy season with october november in the first two weeks i'd say two weeks of december that run is intense i think if we get as much done as we almost get done probably in about four to five months about four months in those two and a half months um in any other time of the year Basically, we got like, you know, folks getting audits in within the last quarter of the calendar year. And then also, you know, this is the first fiscal quarter for federal um, fiscal year. So you've got the first kind of batch of HRSA audits all scheduled in the October, November, December timeframe. So busy, busy time of year in the 340B space. Absolutely. Yep. It, we, I think I, I am helping support two of our clients through HRSA audits. So the following week, I'll be on site uh, for one of them and supporting the other one remotely. So that. Yeah, I echo exactly what you're saying there. It's, uh, it's, it's busy. Well, this week, we're going to challenge Rob by comparing his 340B expertise to that of chat GPT. So <laughs> bulk of our discussion is going to be comparing questions and answers that are addressed by both AI and Rob and see who's giving better 340B advice. Um, so, Rob, wish you well. But before we get into that, let's catch up on what's happening in the 340B landscape. We've got a couple of changes to contract pharmacy restrictions, and then we've got some manufacturer inquiries being sent out to 340B covered entities. Let's talk, start with um, uh, ISI. I think is it a ISI? How do you say it? ISI? ISI, I think is, okay, just for everyone out there, I literally looked it up. I was like, I think it's Japanese, and, and being half Japanese, I was like, I better get this right. So I actually, you know, Googled it. And I will say uh, one of my previous uh, system pharmacy directors uh, came from uh, Drug Info. And whenever we presented at PNT, she would always say, you better get the pronunciation right. So I was like, yes, ma'am. So we looked at it. We believe it's ISI for everyone out there because I literally heard about three or four different pronunciations for that. But uh, at least from the Hooked on Phonics work for me um, approach that's online, ISI appears to be the appropriate pronunciation. If anyone else knows better than me, let us know. We'll correct it in a future episode. But I think that's correct. So another, there are another manufacturer that has now relaxed restrictions in the states that have some state-level uh, laws enacted to protect contract pharmacy provisions. So removing their restrictions for 340B-covered entities that are located in Arkansas and Louisiana. Right. And, it's, and then remember, they're the 27th manufacturer, so they're the newest manufacturer. And uh, I guess already looking to that and, and trying to limit their risk, potentially, um, since the, the, those states, at least one of the states, have started suing manufacturers um, and that's another challenge going on. There's a hundred thousand dollar fine, and so of course they're they're trying to block the fine, and and so we'll see where that all goes. But interesting that we've got a couple states. You know, we've talked about it before, but that uh, basically say you can't um, restrict contract pharmacy at a state level, and 
Of course, the manufacturers arguing that that's a federal decision, not a, or a federal um, item, not a state item, and uh, we'll we'll see where the litigation goes. But uh, fast and in, in the fascinating world of 340B contract pharmacy restrictions, right? Another manufacturer that has updated their contract pharmacy policy is Bristol Myers Squibb or BMS. Um, so they, you know, what we've seen with a lot of other manufacturers, they have extended their restrictions to also be applied to grantee covered entities uh, and wholly owned contract pharmacies or health system owned uh, internal contract pharmacies. So we've seen that those exemptions uh, essentially recede for many of the manufacturers. Now BMS is applying the, the same types of restrictions across all grantee types and applying those restrictions to those pharmacies that your health system may own, but are registered as contract pharmacies because they are not wholly owned by the hospital. Another interesting piece of language in the updated policy is a provision around um, their expectations, and I'll read it verbatim here, that all, quote, all dispensing to 340B eligible patients will occur at the properly designated contract pharmacy location or locations, and those 340B drugs will be shipped directly to that location, either by BMS or an authorized distributor. Rob, what do you make of that new content in the policy letters yeah the, the, those that's I, I highlighted the same thing uh, reading the new BMS update um, on 340b ESP and I, I almost feel like there's two components in there right I think a lot of people are picking up on one of the two but there's there's possibly some other additional things they're trying to address there uh, definitely you know for those that are familiar we don't talk about it heavily here only because um, you know it's it's not necessarily a validated process, but also something that everyone does a little different. And um, and so we haven't shared a ton on this, although we're very aware um, and have some um, knowledge of, of the operations of it. But I do think alternative delivery models, right, where if a covered entity doesn't have the capability of using a bill to ship to contract pharmacy account due to restrictions, is there alter are there alternatives in how you might replenish those drugs to your contract pharmacies? And it feels like BMS is the first of the 27 manufacturers anyway that have kind of highlighted, hey, you you know, I'll read that last part again for everyone, and that 340B drugs will be shipped directly to that location, either by BMS um, or an authorized distributor, which um, authorized distributor likely would be a wholesaler. Um, and so in that case, it's kind of really trying to focus on the fact that they, they're really not going to allow um, covered entities to order the drug in, you know, maybe at their location and, and then have it delivered or couriered over to the contract pharmacy to fulfill that contract pharmacy arrangement. I, so I find it interesting and we'll see what happens. I think there's always a question, how do you enforce it? Yeah. We know that some manufacturers have been um, sort of uh, doing uh, good faith inquiries to identify, hey, you've bought X amount of drug. Can you you know, share the data behind all the patients that uh, utilize that drug from a qualified standpoint? But Greg, I was gonna ask you, I mean, right? Cause there is, okay, you can say it if you're BMS, uh, are you gonna really go through the hassle of looking at data and trying to uh, do good faith inquiries? And then from then, how do you, it's what we've always said, how do you then enforce it? Do you yeah. actually take away pricing from an in-house retailer or a covered entity's um, own 340B account? Because that seems like that would put them at risk as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the concern is that these, you know, your, your entity own accounts are gonna uh, end up losing access if BMS sees you know, a spike in purchasing. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's risky business on the manufacturer side. If you're going to start withholding 340B pricing to an entity owns uh, account, 
that I mean, that's that's clear violation of the statute. You know, yeah. we, we agree that doing that for contract pharmacies also violates, you know, the provisions of the 340B program. But that's the the legal argument that continues to uh, be litigated. But yeah, I think, you know, if a manufacturer is going to suspend sales to an entity's own 340B account, you know, that that opens up a lot of, I think, potential compliance on the manufacturer's part. So I don't know if we'll see. Uh, inquiries, an increase in the number of uh, good faith inquiries coming to covered entities when we see referral of those inquiries to HRSA by the manufacturers, uh, suggesting that a covered entity may need to be subject to a HRSA uh, 340B drug pricing program audit because of their lack of comfort in a covered entity's response to those inquiries. So a little too soon to tell, but um, definitely appears intentional to address maybe one of these workarounds that some of the hospitals and clinics have developed to try to, you know, continue to use 340B in their contract pharmacy locations. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, um, I, reading through the whole thing, I picked up on one other thing that I wasn't sure, um, you know, has been commonly in there, at least I haven't seen it, in their duplicate discount, uh, they call it duplication, um, but they make reference to the fact that um, duplicate discount applies to both fee-for-service Medicaid, and they, they specifically called out managed Medicaid or MCO Medicaid to be excluded as well. Um, right, because we know that, you know, from a HRSA level and and that uh, they don't have rulemaking authority around this. And so they haven't updated the regulation or rules around duplicate discount to include MCO, um, even though I know they want to. It's not that they don't want to or don't understand. They just they don't have the rulemaking authority to do it. And so interesting that manufacturers are now, or at least BMS, made sure they specifically put it in there to, to alert everyone that, hey, we consider MCO Medicaid also requiring to be excluded from this yeah. process. Speaking of inquiries, we've seen a lot of chatter on the 340B Health Exchange, and I know we've been working with clients that have received letters as well. Genentech sending out inquiries, uh, essentially inquiring about the lack of WAC purchasing for a variety of NDCs. So they're sending letters to covered entities, and they include a, a table of drugs where they suggest that the covered entity should have made at least some initial WAC purchases for those NDCs. Um, if they're using a, uh, a virtual inventory replenishment model. So, Rob, what, what's, what have you taken away from looking at and working with covered entities that have received some of those letters? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the drugs in question um, are going to be in your infusion centers uh, and, and often utilize a prospective 340B inventory, what we like to just simply call clean site um, inventory. Yeah. Uh, physically separate inventory, lots of names for it, but all means the same thing. It means that you're not really, because these are all outpatients and providing that you're carving in Medicaid or, or bill Medicaid uh, fee-for-service, then you'd be allowed to go 100% 340B, uh, providing that's all true. And if that's the case, then you don't need initial WAC purchase, right? The WAC purchase requirement is only for mixed-use situations where you don't know the patient status of that initial um, administration or dispense. And so I, it almost feels like they, they kind of left that out and... Um, and, and so I'd say for a vast majority of covered entities receiving this letter, I think that's just your response back, if you respond. Uh, one thing, if you read the letter, which is sort of odd, um, and, and one of our clients pointed this out because I presented this in their uh, monthly um, uh, 340 meeting, that the letter doesn't actually say you need to respond. It's almost like they're alerting you. Almost all other good faith inquiries have a respond, please respond by X date, and they didn't do it in, the, in this genetic letter. Uh, so I know a lot of covered entities are responding just to, you know, in good faith or in just, just to nip everything in a bud and say, hey, we use a prospective 340B. And if that's the case, you may want to. But interesting, if you read the letter, there technically isn't a response request. And so you could just wait and see. Um, and then if they do at some point reach out and say, hey, we haven't heard back, you know, you can say, well, because you didn't ask us to. But 
now that you have, it's, it's prospective 340 inventory. I'll also say, you know, even if you're using a mixed use environment, a lot of people do kind of a hybrid model. And, and this, this would happen if you only have one compounding pharmacy, right? So you don't have a separate compounding center for your infusion center. Sometimes you still just do a purely virtual inventory, but you might have a, some drugs like infusion drugs that are only used in the infusion center yeah. where you do a hybrid. Um, you still buy those direct and you just kind of manage those accumulations. Yeah, you, you block those accumulations and, and just make your purchases prospectively based on patient. Yep. 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 And so lots of responses there. So yeah, just definitely want to throw it out there. If you receive that letter, you're not the only one. Many, many of these letters went out to covered entities. So I think it's just a shotgun approach. And um, Genentech has done that in the past, just shotgun um, compliance letters to a lot of covered entities. Sometimes people who weren't even anywhere near violation, um, you might even have, so I think they simply look, did you have a whack purchase in history? If you didn't and you're buying the drug, then they sent you the letter, regardless of what your um, inventory status is. What, what, what are the rules that govern covered entities responds or obligation to respond to those types of letters? I mean, if, if they state it's a good faith inquiry, right, that's that's HRSA's thing. It, for a manufacturer to do a covered entity audit, they first have to go, go through a good faith inquiry process. And so, I, I, you know, a lot of times they'll use some of that language in there, and that's what you want to pay attention to. And if they do say this is a good faith inquiry and then have a response requirement date and say, can you please respond by this date? Um, then it's it, more than likely you're going to want to respond just because if you ignore it and they put that type of language in there, they, that manufacturer could go to HRSA and petition to be allowed to do a manufacturer audit of your covered entity, which which doesn't happen very often. Um, but you want to prevent that by at least um, corresponding with the manufacturer. And of course, if the time frame is short, you can push back, right? Just because they say you need to respond in a week or two weeks doesn't mean you have to. You can say, hey, we're really busy. We'll um, we've acknowledged your request, your good faith inquiry request. We're going to leave a little bit more time for that um, data collection uh, due to limited resources or whatever the case may be. Um, so you don't always have to meet their exact demand, but uh, but responding would be the appropriate thing to do. All right. Anything else happening in terms of news and noteworthy items in the 340B or healthcare space we want to talk about? I think we covered the big ones. Um, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I think worth mentioning, only because uh, we've got a couple podcasts left, but... November 27, 2023 is the DSM, one of the big DSCSA um, implementations. If you remember, not necessarily being enforced, but still goes into effect. But one of those are GLNs. So if, if you're not familiar with GLNs, this really isn't a 340B thing per se. It's tangentially related. Um, they're global location numbers. And really through the DSCSA, what's being required is any receiving location needs to have a 13-digit GLN that you apply for. It's relatively low cost. I'm, most of you should have had your supply chain Departments um, already do this or uh, pharmacy operations, but worth double checking. Um, I wanted to read something from Cardinal. Um, and so uh, other wholesalers might have something similar, right? Even though it's the DSA say a requirement's not going to be enforced, the question is, well, are wholesalers going to enforce it? And this is off Cardinal's FAQs around uh, GLNs. And what they said, the question was, will Cardinal Health continue shipping products to customers after November 27, 2023, if they are not DSCSA compliant? Cardinal's response is, Cardinal Health remains committed to our implementation efforts and working with you and our manufacturer partners to meet the enhanced drug distribution security requirements. We will be unable to do business with customers who have not supplied a GLN for each location that we ship to by November 27, 2023, the implementation date. So probably true for some other vendors as well. So just make sure that all of your receiving locations, especially for whether it's 340B GPO or WAC, if it applies to you, um, that you do have GLNs for them and that you supply them to your suppliers in case they're also going to enforce the DSCSA, DSCSA um, requirements um, on November 27th. 
The other question was, what about contract pharmacies? And so the answer is yes, technically contract pharmacies are also receiving locations. Cardinal's response to the question, do contract pharmacies need to provide their own GLN to Cardinal Health? The answer was Cardinal Health will mirror retail account GLNs to the 340B contract pharmacy at the same location. However, covered entities may obtain a separate GLN for the contract pharmacy account. Covered entities will need to provide Cardinal Health within any sold two GLNs, depending on the number of GLNs the business requires. So my recommendation for contract pharmacies, just double check that um, your wholesalers that you have contract pharmacy uh, 340B bill to ship to accounts for that they do that they are mirroring the retail pharmacies GLN because I'm sure the retail pharmacies will have been told they need to get these as well. Um, and if not, um, or if you have to manually make sure that they, they mirror it, then do that. So just want to throw it out there because, but you know, this podcast will drop. You have about a month to just double check those things just so you don't have your accounts um, unable to ship um, after that date. Great reminder. Thanks, Rob. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. On the other side, we will have Rob battle chat GPT. We'll be right back. Wish me luck. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendmen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Welcome back, everyone. Rob, are you ready for your battle with ChatGPT? <laughs> I think I am. I think I am. Uh, so I guess I should say uh, if this goes poorly, then it was really nice knowing everybody. Um, I'll just retire now and... Um, and live a sheltered life as a hermit somewhere in the mountains. If it goes poorly, we're just going to record something else. We will <laughs> burn this recording and pretend like it never happened. All right. So if you're listening to this, then it didn't go poorly <laughs> because we didn't burn the recording and and put in some random thing, um, you know, but her audits or something like that. AI AI has been huge, huge topic of conversation. Every industry out there is trying to understand how they're going to be disrupted by the the growing prevalence of uh ai um we're we're not separate from that so healthcare providers 340b providers folks in the pharmacy world also kind of grappling with how businesses are going to change moving forward with the availability of ai what what are your thoughts rob as a former business owner and senior leadership in a large organization does a lot of work with data what where where do you see us needing to look at how ai is going to intersect with what we do Greg, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I, you know, and and I've been following AI kind of as a hobby part time ever since it kind of you know Chat GPT three or um, I can't remember the numbers and letters all the time. Uh, way too many acronyms, but but I've been following it and and that's something that I always listen to because I'm trying to figure out where are the use cases and how how do those use cases apply to our business um, on the consulting side? And then I also think about well, what about all the other uh, partners? You know, the vendor partners and and health systems and everything they're doing. And how AI could could you know improve what we do, but also possibly disrupt what we do. And you know, starting with us at Spendmend, um, you know, I where we are, I just want to let everyone know we are actively looking at it. And not to you know uh, give out our playbook, but I I think if you are in um, a service oriented space right now, whether it's 340B or anything else, if you're not looking at AI as a, a way to improve what you do, I think you're going to be in trouble because I think new companies will start with AI back, backbones. They're going to be much more efficient. 
um, maybe much more accurate. And because of that, it could really disrupt so many different industries. So I think, but I, here's what I believe, but I believe the, the people that are gonna be able to do it the best are the people that already know all of the details and in intricacies of their service and business line. Um, as long as they start looking at how do we adopt um, AI technology. So, you know, for us, without giving our playbook away, we, um, you know, one fortunate thing about being a part of a larger company is we're able to leverage, you know, our, our parent organization um, to, to collectively as a whole look at all of our business units and identify where our best use cases was. And of course, pharmacy does have some in our compliance side. And again, I won't give it away too much, but if you think about where you could do it, um, there's a lot of physical, or physical, um, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess physical, but, um, you know, non-automated um, reviews that we have to do just to prepare for our annual audits, right? We're looking at tons and tons of data. Well, can AI help us um, automate that down so that what our auditors have to do and our um, 340B analysts have to do is just check the final review, um, check to see what the AI might have missed, but it takes a lot of that heavy legwork and matching um, that we do um, manually. That was the word I was looking for um, up front. So I think that's a good area. I also think another good area is predictive analytics, right? Looking at um, kind of uh, looking at all the data and identifying risks that we just don't, don't maybe don't catch on our own because it can look at the data in aggregate, um, maybe look at other data and other risk factors. So I think that's a really cool area. People are aware of um, our other company that uh, joined us a year ago, Trula. I think there's lots of use cases within Trula from the analytics package to the procurement processes and really, again, looking at how we can streamline some of those pieces. So super excited for that. I think also in healthcare in general, if you think about our other vendors in our space that we where we don't work, I think third-party administration, um, referral capture, um, I think this ESP management, all these areas, huge opportunities for AI. And I'm sure some of the, the bigger TPAs are already looking at how do we leverage AI to improve what we do and stay efficient. Um, so excited about all of that. But I mean, I, I really think AI is sort of one of those um, things that kind of change how we operate in the world, almost like the internet, right? The ability for us to, to, to use less resources to get the same amount of work done, it's gonna really change how we do things. Um, I do think it's gonna take some time, right? AI, I guess we'll find out how good AI is at 340BC if it's ready to take our jobs yet. But, um, yeah. but I think it's gonna take time for it to get better, but someday it will, it will get good enough where it's gonna be duplicatable. Um, I also think it's gonna change how we communicate. Um, I think I just listened to a podcast between um, Lex Friedman and, um, Mark Zuckerberg, where, where, they, where they didn't use AI, but they used a lot of the AI technology for the video conferencing, where they felt like they're, they're, they're you know, states apart, but they felt like they're in the same room doing this 3D imaging. I thought it was really cool. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you can check that podcast out um, by Lex Friedman. Uh, but a fantastic episode on kind of what this technology can do. What are, what are your thoughts, Greg? Because I'm sure, I know you're listening and paying attention to it too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, my interests have been kind of like in content creation or information retrieval. So you're coming from, you know, working in 340B space, a lot of, lot of the, you know, do, helping covered entities through audits, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times we're really providing a lot of education to the clients that we're working with and how, you know, accurate and how reliable is the information that you can get from a platform like ChatGPT in terms of recommendations, you know, do, do, can you just type in your question into ChatGPT and get a reliable um, compliant response or a response that's gonna steer you towards a uh, direction that is uh, gonna satisfy Hearst audit criteria. Same thing with drug information. Are you able to get reliable drug information if I'm a pharmacist that's gonna rely on uh, AI generated um, drug information content database 
you know, for the purposes of making decisions around drug therapy, how reliable and how how vetted are the responses that you get from these these different platforms. I mean, that's that's where I've a lot of interest. Spend a lot of time writing drug monographs for the PNT committee, and it's mm-hmm. an incredibly time-consuming process. And the prospect of having you know an AI-driven process for doing that is really enticing to me. But um, what are the the measures that you're going to need to put in place to validate what's what's being created by those tools uh, that again serves as your you know basis for making a lot of decisions. So, right, right. I'm like self-driving, right? Self-driving cars. Yeah. It's cool technology. We're so close yet. We kind of still need to kind of monitor and vet. We're not quite ready for prime time yet. Um, you know, bad things can still happen. I mean, I still think uh, self-driving is probably safer than human driving, especially with all the distractions we have these days and and, and influence of uh, substances and things like that. Um, but, uh, but I still, it's just, you know, it's gonna be early and I think people have to get comfortable with it. And yeah, and we've got some cool things we're working on. I, I don't want to spoil, I, again, I don't want, well, I don't want to give any or anyone, any of our competitors, some competitive Intel, but, uh, we're definitely looking at some large language models with our own data and the think, what can we do with that? Since we have so many data, right? I, we've done, I think it's safe to say, I think we've done more annual independent audits than any other firm out there. We're approaching 2,500 annual independent audits and that's a lot. We've got a strong team and we, and and our clients um, really support us and stick with us, which we appreciate. But what if we take a lot of that data, put it in there and personally, right? Don't put it out to the public. So no one can go borrow it, but we can give our clients access to it or, or our team can use it as access to really identify um, common trends and uh, responses to common questions, almost like our own Q&A database based on all of our data that we collect. That could be really cool. Yeah. Well, that, I think it's a good segue because, you know, that's essentially what we're going to do, do here with, with the absence of us having fed Chad GPT content that we've used for answering questions and addressing 340B compliance related issues. We've fed no data into Chat GPT, but what we're going to do here now kind of set the stage for the format of Rob's challenge against Chat GPT is just ask some very basic uh, questions or, or uh you know, concerns or issues that come from the field. So questions that we've gotten from clients or questions that we've had dialogue about internally and asked ChatGPT to provide a short, concise response. Um, So we're going to go through those questions. We'll give Rob the chance to either ask or answer the question first or have ChatGPT's answer read back to him first. And then uh, I guess create a, a rebuttal to what uh, chat GPT has put out. Does that sound good? It sounds good. I, I'm actually a little nervous. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm a little nervous. I don't know. I, I feel like I shouldn't be, but uh, uh, I think my hands are sweating. Don't tell so me. So we got maybe a half a dozen or so. We'll call them FAQs. So they're kind of phrased in the same way that you'll see FAQs out on a Pexis's website, or you might see in the spend on newsletter. So we'll do about a half a dozen or so questions and answers with Rob. And then at the end, Rob, I've got, I guess it's, we'll call it a quiz. It's 10 fill in the blank sentences that we asked ChatGPT to create Wait, around 340B. So, um, you know, this essentially will, we'll, we'll give you your, your ACE3 certification just based on your pass or fail rate of the, uh, the fill in the blank sentences that. Oh my gosh. You did, I, I wasn't warned about this. I haven't seen these questions. So now, now uh, the, the nervous. Yeah, we, we debated whether or not it was fair to give Rob the questions ahead of time. And I think Aiden decided, no, she doesn't want Rob to have any insight information. This is supposed to be unscripted. So again, we have the right to just nuke the uh, the recording when we're done here, if it doesn't go well. But I, w- I will say, 
I wasn't really impressed with the feedback that came out of chat GPT. And again, probably because we haven't taught it what we want it to know about the 340B uh, nuances. So I, I'm not too worried about it for you, Rob. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little better. All right. Well, let's get started here. Okay. First question that we asked is, what is the most common type of HRSA audit finding reported in audits from 2022? Do you want to go first or you want me to read what Chad GPT wow. said? <laughs> I normally get a look at the slide for that. I don't have that memorized. The most common type of finding in 2022, I'm going to have, oh, I get to pick who goes first. I'll go first on this one. You want to go I first? Don't want to yeah. Um, and this, I'm not looking at any data because um, so in my brain, it's going to be between OPACE database finding inaccuracy right. finding. Um, and then, you know, and the other one that comes up a lot is the MEF slash duplicate discount one because there's a high percentage. So it's going to be one of those two. But I'm going to say OPACE database finding just because they're so it's kind of nitpicky about, you know, your Medicare cost report dates or building yeah. ship to addresses, all those things. So I'm going to go OPACE database finding. You're right. Finally. Perfect. Good. One one for one. Yeah. OPA database findings, more than 50% of the audits that were final, full, fully adjudicated in 2022 had OPA database findings. Usually those don't result in a, or a manufacturer repayment. Um, right. It's more of a, a clerical or administrative finding. You need to correct the, the OPA database. You get put into a corrective action plan. Um, and you're right. Medicaid exclusion file, second most common findings. I think it's around 25, 30% of audits that had findings last year had some type of meth finding. So you didn't have correct billing information listed on the Medicaid. It's NPIs. Yeah. yeah. NPIs are catching a lot of people. Yeah. Out of state Medicaid too, if you're carving in. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, good. So here's the uh, chat GPT could not answer this question. So I'll read the, the response here. And I think this highlights one of the limitations right now. It says chat GPT's response. I don't have access to data specific to HRSA audit findings in 2022, as my knowledge only goes up until September, 2021. To obtain the most current information on common HRSA audit findings, I recommend checking with HRSA's official website or contacting HRSA directly for the latest audit findings and compliance issues. And I even went back, I tried to ask for common audit findings prior to 2021, and you kept getting the same kind of non-answer back from ChatGPT. So um, one of the, I think, limitations is that you may not have the most up-to-date information available to you in some of these AI models to answer questions of more more recent um, nature, I guess. So good job, Rob. Is that one one Rob zero chat GPT? Yeah. Well I, we're not we should I should be keeping score here. So yeah. Here let me keep score here. I got the lead. I got the lead. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. How should a covered entity calculate its 340B savings? You want to go first or you want me to read what chat GPT said? Let's alternate. We'll keep it interesting. I'm curious what chat GPT says. Yeah. So, so I don't know if chat GPT really understood the question, but I'll read the <laughs> response. So the, it, they, they answered in a two-part um, answer. So first is their first response is one, how to calculate 340B savings for covered entities. Covered entities can calculate their 340B savings by subtracting the discounted 340B price they pay for drugs from the regular market price of those drugs. This straightforward calculation shows the difference between what you pay with 340B and what you would have paid otherwise without it, giving you a clear picture of your cost savings. And then they say there's a different formula for dish covered entity 340B savings, but they essentially restate the same 
formula. So the 340B price minus what you would have paid without 340B. Okay. I mean, there. I think they got halfway there. Um, yeah. I, I felt like almost on the DISH, and they should have applied it to DISH pediatric and cancer hospitals, but yep. um, right, that same, as far as the calculation, you would also have to factor in WAC. I almost felt like they were trying to go to the WAC component, right? So you have to do, uh, I would say, I agree, GPO minus 340B for your, I guess, gross 340B savings. Then you have to do your WAC, um, I guess, minus GPO to identify your additional expense because of WAC exposure. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other part that they're missing, though, is I, I think for part of your net savings calculation should include your cost of doing business, right? So yeah, yeah. any services, whether, well, it, you know, in a TPA's case, sometimes that's netted out in a contract pharmacy scenario. It's netted out in your um, your savings, but in in-house retail or your mixed-use environments or your clean site, or I guess clean site, you wouldn't have any. But anywhere you would be using a TPA where you're paying a flat fee or a monthly fee that's not included in your net savings calculation, you'd have to subtract that too plus your FTE resources and all the resources that goes into your program and then any other vendors. And for Spenman, for instance, we if we're doing your annual independent audit, there's a cost that or any other vendor you're using for additional services, lawyer fees, right? There's quite a few um, legal needs within the 340B space. I think conference costs, so all of that has to be factored in because if you weren't in the 340B program, you wouldn't be incurring all those costs and then you would get to your true net costs. Good, Rob two, chat GPT. Zero. I give them a half on that, maybe. I'm... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was. I mean, that's a good rudimentary kind of description of what the savings was. But yeah, I think there's some additional factors that you need to account for if you're trying to determine what the true value is of your your participation in the program. So um, not not right, but it's okay. Is it Whitney Houston say that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Did she? I think it's not right, but it's okay. Yeah, that's a Whitney Houston song. Not a, I wasn't a big Whitney. I knew a couple of big songs, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if I know that one. All right. Uh, next question here. Um, all right. Uh, this should be a simple question. What is a 340B trial balance crosswalk? You want to go first? Sure. All right. Uh, yeah, I won't go into too much detail since we just did a webinar and um, a little bit of podcast information on that. But a trial balance crosswalk, um, specifically in relation to 2C on a HRSA data request, and I promise I'm not reading anything. I literally just did this for a couple of clients over the past couple of weeks. And so 2C burned it in, burned in my brain. Um, but that trial balance crosswalk they're asking for is really a crosswalk of all of your child sites and the trial balance uh, cost center. So it's for trial balance for worksheets A and C, the cost centers. And uh, the name, you know, then the name um, in your uh, trial balance and also the, the real name and address that um, you have in OPACE and in real life, I guess, technically. And you're just really crosswalking that for HRSA so that they can understand where all these child sites came from so they can make sure that there's both expenses and charges on worksheets A and C respectively. Um, some people also include some of their parent locations, but regarding 2C on a HRSA DRL, it just applies to child sites. Um, we like to try and add all the sites um, based on that, but uh, that'd be more part of 2A, which is a list of all your qualified locations. That's a good answer. All right, here's what ChatGPT said. A 340B trial balance crosswalk is a document that helps ensure accurate and transparent reporting for the 340B program. It's a tool used by covered entities to align their financial records with the 340B program requirements to assist HRSA auditors during audits. In simpler terms, it's a roadmap. And I've heard that kind of that that 
terminology map of environment or roadmap. So I, I like that they pulled that in. It's a roadmap huh. that links a covered entity's financial records, such as the trial balance with specific aspects of the 340B program. This cro crosswalk typically includes a list of financial accounts and provides a clear separation of 340B eligible transactions from non-340B transactions. I don't know what they mean there. It also offers explanations and documentation to support the accuracy and compliance of the program. The trial balance crosswalks a critical component to maintaining program integrity and allows covered entities to demonstrate 340B program benefits that are directed to eligible patients and adhere to program requirements when undergoing HRSA audits or third-party auditors. Some buzzwords in there, but they, I don't think they fully get it, right? Right, right. Um, I, I mean, I think it was well written, like especially for a write-up. Um, I think that would sound good. Yeah, yeah but I would, I would want to add some detail about the, the child site crosswalking and, and the specific need for it, because um, it might not have understood that that the the phrase of the trial balance crosswalk comes from the HRSA data request. But yeah. uh, I, I think it was well well um, written from a vocabulary standpoint. All right, good. Um, let's see here. Let's go. You want to go with a tricky question? Oh, no. Okay. All right, here. The, the, uh, maybe it's a tricky question. This is a question I think comes up a lot, and I think we've written about it in our, our newsletter, and um, ChatGPT had some thoughts around how to address this. So question is, what are the criteria that allow a dish hospital to buy GPO drugs for off-site outpatient locations? Is ChatGPT first this time or me? What you pick. Okay. Oh, well, well, I think I went first last time, so let's go chat GPT. This time. All right. So, so chat GPT gives, reiterates the 340B patient definition. They say HRSA defines a 340B eligible patient as an individual who meets specific criteria to receive drugs purchased through the program. These criteria, so they're, they're talking about 340B eligibility, but we're asking them to define when you can actually use GPO right. purchase drugs in your outpatient. The GP prohibition exclusion. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they're already kind of off the beaten path here. Um, they, they list six different things that need to be evaluated for this scenario. One, patient location. Patient must have received healthcare services at an eligible healthcare facility known as a covered entity under the 340B program. So they're already confused. <laughs> yeah, so, they're down the wrong path. Yeah, and then they, they get into eligibility criteria, medical care, provider-patient relationship, prescription requirement, disp dispensing location. So we ask them about using GPO in offsite outpatient locations, but they're really reiterating the requirements around using 340B drugs in eligible patients. So they've completely missed the, the, missed the whole concept of what we're asking here. So Rob, correct chat GPT here. What, what do we, what are the four components that you need to think about when you're buying GPO drugs for your offsite locations? Yeah, so th this definitely is part of the 2013 GPO prohibition clarification that HRSA put out. And in that letter, they had, um, and again, I don't, I promise I don't have any letters up, so I have to go from memory here. Um, but they had some specific bullet points in that letter for when uh, the GPO prohibition could be um, excluded or exempted. Uh, one of the main ones is that that location is not within the four walls of the covered entity, right? So if, if this non-qualified location or location you don't want to do 340B in for whatever reason, is within the four walls, then you won't be able to use the GPO prohibition exclusion. So that's critical, especially as you think about your four wall definition, um, the, the broader you make it, you know, trying to, you know, stay within the bounds of what HRSA allows, uh, the more risk you have of having a non-qualified location, like a 190 clinic be within the four walls. So that's one thing. Uh, the second one is if, if you do decide, to, well, I'll save that. No, I'll say it now. 
if if you do decide to use GPO, um, it has to be a separate GPO account, right? So that GPO account that's tied to your mixed use accumulator, you can't use that. So we always recommend having a separate GPO account just for this type of purchasing, the excluded purchasing. Um, some people also use that account to buy non-covered outpatient drugs, which is probably okay. But I always like to tell people just to have a separate account just for these these clinics or locations that you're using a GPO GPO prohibition exclusion for, or sometimes even have them just buy their own drugs through their own accounts. Um, the third thing um, that we like to talk about is to make sure that you're not um, using 340B in that location. I think that's one of the things Hersa said. So if you're going to use a GPO prohibition exclusion for a you know site that might be qualified, then you can't do 340B there. Can't register it's it on the pace. Yep. Yes, and so it can't be registered. You can't treat it like a 340 location. Decide, oh no, we're not. Um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna make it a GPO site when when you kind of listed it or treated it as 340B or buy 340B drugs for them. So you can't do both. Um, so you can't have, so you can't use it to have a GPO based inventory and then replenish with 340B. That would be a non-starter. Um, I might miss this fourth one, so maybe I want to get a partial credit here. But the fourth one that we always talk about is also duplicate discount compliance. Um, if if that particular location bills, then I think you want to be careful about possibly excluding it. Uh, bills 340B um, the same way the hospital does. So if it's a hospital-based department, uh, but you're choosing to not do 340B and you're say you're in an MPI state, you do run a little bit of risk. Yeah. Um, if you're billing drugs um, from that location. So I always tell people to make sure you also have duplicate discount in mind as you look at that. So, yeah, so without that, looking, did I miss anything there? Well, no. Uh, well, so the, the fourth the fourth point that you brought up, the duplicate discount, definitely a risk, but not outlined in the GPO. Right. Um, it's personal. 2013. So they, they just say you have to have auditable records that can demonstrate that uh, covered yeah. outpatient drugs bought on those GPO accounts are not used in your 340B eligible locations. Yeah, that's right. I, I, that, yeah, because that one's more of a quality, uh, not something you would do up front, but something you would do to manage or, or quality check your program. And and HRSA will double check, right? That's where that separate accounts come in. And then also that uh, that could be a borrow lend situation to make sure that, that, that now prospective GPO drugs not being intermingled with your mixed use or 340B environments yep. uh, so that you don't cause a GPO prohibition um, risk. So good. Again, Rob, I think that's four now. I you. didn't get it 100%. Um, no, but I think you got it. That's that's. I'll, I'll pass that. Judge judge rules that it's okay. So. Oh, you're a nice judge. I like <laughs> you, Greg. <laughs> um, wait, what about? Is it? Is it? I didn't put this into the AI, but so if you're buying, you got physician office practice within the four walls. So we just talked about offsite locations, but what happens if you've got a physician office that's within the four walls of your hospital? They're not on your cost report. You're buying some some drugs for them to give during clinic. Uh, visits. Uh, what, what are the rules around that? That's a good question. I think that's kind of a gray area. I mean, typically, yeah. be, especially if the clinics aren't your clinics, so you're not, um, uh, you're not, you know, they're, they're say our medical group clinics, so they're not on your yeah. cost report. Uh, you know, I don't think they fall under the GP prohibition. It's almost like a uh, in-house retail pharmacy, right? That's um, that's owned by the health system, so a wholly owned pharmacy, but not a covered entity-owned pharmacy. They're not subject to GP prohibition as well. The gray area comes in if you're supplying drugs, right? Then I think yeah. you have to be a little careful. Typically, I'd, we recommend, if that's the case, just have them supply their own drugs and make sure they have their own accounts, um, whether it's a med surge account or some separate um, GPO account for those clinics. Um, and as a dish-covered entity, you know, I mean, and here's the thing, though. Sometimes a dish-covered entity might, might support the purchasing process, but it's not their account, right? So that's the big thing. That account really needs to be that an account of that retail pharmacy, um, that uh, doesn't meet GPO prohibition needs or that medical group clinic um, that technically isn't part of the covered entity. Um, they really need to have their own account. 
we have seen situations where the the covered entity buyer helps manage it, and that's where that's a great. But I th we feel that's okay. We haven't seen it be a risk on a hearse audit or not because it, all they're doing is almost providing a service. They're not. It's not actually the covered entity's accounts. So I think that would make it okay, even yes. if they're in the four walls. You need to have again segregated purchasing mm -hmm. accounts. If the hospital pharmacy is going to buy for that location, it's got to be on the WAC account, right? Yeah, I would agree. If they're going to use their own accounts, then they can't, right? Yeah. Because that's the, the GPO prohibition compliance. If you read the 2013 letter, it really talks about regardless of, of you know, whether it's their patient or not, it's the covered entity cannot use a GPO price um, drug for a, a covered outpatient drug for an outpatient period, whether it qualifies or not, which is why the retail pharmacy of a covered entity that's subject to the GPO prohibition actually has to have a whacker and neutral based inventory because they're an open door. So they're servicing qualified patients and non-qualified patients. And initially we thought, well, non-qualified patients shouldn't fall under the GPO prohibition. And that 2013 letter clarified it does. And so that's when we, you know, we went and all got WAC accounts for all kinds of things um, to meet compliance. And so I think that same thing applies. It's just the covered entity itself on their accounts cannot buy GPO, covered outpatient drugs for outpatients, period. So just as long as you remember, that's the rule. So how you set it up matters here. All right. That's my redemption for not getting the audible records part. All right, next question. This is, uh, I guess, a little bit related. So we asked about offsite outpatient locations and how you, when you need to register child site. So here, here's the question that was posed. How should a covered entity determine if an offsite outpatient location needs to be registered on OPACE? Okay, am I up first this time? I think I am, right? Yeah, you go first. Okay, so, okay, only because we, we deal with this all the time. <laughs> um, so it's it's to the cost center level. So going back to the child balance worksheets, ANC, right? Expenses and charges. It's every single cost center that's listed in that child balance that has a separate expenses, separate charges on worksheets, ANC respectively. Um, that's not within the four walls. So you do have to determine your four walls designation or, or definition. And where they either administer a covered outpatient drug or could write a prescription for a qualified 340B drug would need to be registered separately. And what's critical there that we just like to remind everybody, because we still see it, is if you have something like a multi-specialty clinic and that multi-specialty clinic, when you look in the trial balance, has three, four, five different cost centers, each of those cost centers have to be registered separately. If in your trial balance, it just says multi-specialty clinic and those different services you have in there aren't listed separately and it's just one single cost center, then you're fine to just register it as the multi-specialty clinic. So just one nuance we like to talk about, same thing for cancer infusion centers, you may have to register the infusion center of the med on clinic, other med medical onco or oncology clinics separately, as well as the radiation oncology separately. Sometimes we see people just do one catch-all um, uh, cancer center registration, and that's another scenario that could get you in trouble. So it's always the cost center level is, is the source of truth there. Very good. ChatGPT do on that one. Yeah. So again, I think they, ChatGPT really didn't tie in the need to look at cost centers and review the child trial balance. They gave, again, they, they kind of provide responses to these questions in an outline format. So five discrete um, categories of considerations or factors that need to be reviewed. And here's, you know, tell me what you think about what they're saying here. So um, here are the five factors that covered entities need to consider when registering child sites on OPACE. One patient mix. If the location serves a substantial number of Medicaid or uninsured patients, it likely qualifies for 340B registration. That seems overly broad and nonspecific. Uh, I, was, I was waiting for more. No, that, <laughs> that's, that's number one. So I don't know. Again, not, not very specific. Number two, scope of services. If the site provides a wide range of healthcare services similar to the main facility, it may need to be registered. 
Three, ownership and control. Ensure that you have operational administrative control over the offsite location, which is important for registration. Four, state and local laws. Comply with state and local laws and regulations regarding 340B registration for offsite locations. And five, consult with OPA. When in doubt, it's a good idea to consult with Office of Pharmacy Affairs to determine if the offsite location should be registered. That's it. Not okay. very specific, little bit generic, and in some cases irrelevant. Right. Not necessarily wrong, but yeah. I mean, state and local no. laws are not going to have any bearing on 340B registration requirements, right? Or we should say that saying? we always have to follow local laws, but you're right. If, um, not particularly pertinent in this case. Yeah. All right. So again, another one where Rob clearly outshines AI. I'm feeling better at this point. Yeah. I'm sure ChatGPT um, has got the full grasp of 340B at this point. All right. Well, here's a, I, I think this is a uh, difficult question to answer, or maybe a question where I don't think there's always a, there isn't a black and white answer. This is an area where there's lots of interpretation. So um, this is maybe the trickiest question that we ask. Are 340B purchased drugs able to be used in skilled nursing facilities? That's a fine question. Um, we, I, I think we're alternating, so I think it's uh, ChatGPT. Yeah, ChatGPT yeah, chat here. I'll read their response, and then you can uh, you can offer a different opinion here. So um, I'm very boldly, the response here is yes. Drugs purchased through the 340B program can be used in skilled nursing facilities under certain conditions. The key consideration is patient eligibility. So for 340B drugs to be used in SNFs, the patient receiving the medication must meet 340B program eligibility, which typically includes individuals who receive healthcare services at a covered entity that participate in the program. However, it's important to note that rules and regulations governing the use of 340B drugs and SNFs may vary by state and institution. Covered entities must ensure compliance with all relevant state and federal guidelines to use 340B drugs in SNF patients. The use of 340B drugs in SNF locations is subject to continuous scrutiny and evolving regulations, so it's advisable for covered entities to stay informed about the latest guidelines and work closely with their legal and compliance teams to ensure all applicable roles are followed. So three, four, chat GPT saying there is a chance. What, what are your thoughts? How do you approach the question around, can we dispense 340B drugs to patients that are sitting in skilled nursing facility beds? Wow, super. Uh, I'd say this is one of those gray areas that um, I've even gone back and forth over my career on SNFs. Um, you know, lo a long time ago, we kind of just sort of push back and say, you know, SNFs are this kind of weird part. And, and what we had is a lot of critical access hospitals and some other hospital types that do have SNFs on their cost report. And in fact, a skilled nursing facility typically will actually fall under an inpatient line of your cost report if, if it's part of your hospital. In many cases, it's a separate business unit. So for sure, then that wouldn't qualify. And so the question is, if the SNF is a business unit of your hospital, it's on an inpatient line, how does that work? Um, you know, we know that we don't actually show outpatient charges for those. So I know before HRSA clarified or Apexis had the FAQ about not having to register inpatient um, cost centers or inpatient units um, on, on you know, on HRSA's child sites. So this also goes is true for like a, a uh, inpatient site facility or an inpatient rehab, right? Uh, skilled nursing, they all kind of fall in that area on the inpatient lines um, just after your acute um, units would go on line 30. So they're kind of deeper on that list. And so I've kind of changed on that. I kind of look at it and say, well, in theory, you could, right? It's it's an inpatient unit that may have outpatients. 
And I think this is where you probably need to just work with your compliance and legal and determine, do you consider any of those patients outpatient? And one area I think that an argument can be made, um, if if you're familiar with um, how skilled nursing facilities work, is uh, there's most of them are Medicare patients, right? Most patients in uh, SNFs are Medicare. And Medicare has these rules where there's a period of time that patients will qualify for um, care or stays at a SNF under Medicare Part A, right? And we know Medicare Part A is kind of more an inpatient type insurance. Now, at some point, it flips over to Medicare Part B. And why this is important is because when they're under Medicare Part A, they pay a higher rate to the skilled nursing facility and drugs are included in that payment. And so I definitely would argue that that those, those drugs would not be eligible for 340B. Now, if they're Medicare Part B, what often happens is then the, the drugs then are not covered as part of that payment because it's a much lower payment to the SNF. And now those drugs go through Medicare Part D and often through a long-term care pharmacy or in many cases, a contract pharmacy or I mean a retail pharmacy and community or a chain pharmacy that happens to also do some long-term, long-term care or skilled nursing facility um, filling. And that's where you get the little one-month bubble packs or these kind of prepackaged meds. And so I think there can be an argument there that when they fall under Medicare Part B, which is considered outpatient insurance, and they're filling drugs under Medicare Part D, which is outpatient drug prescription coverage, that you could then in theory qualify that. To make one caveat is, you know, how do the visits occur and where do those prescriptions come from? Um, sometimes those there's external providers coming in providing that service and you don't really have access to those medical records. So do you have audible records if it's not technically being done through the SNF? Um, and then we have scenarios where the, um, the providers taking care of those patients are coming from, say, a rural health center or some uh, primary care that's part of the covered entity as a qualified clinic, and all the care is being documented in that medical record. And I think that also strengthens your chance between the fact that you have Medicare Part D being filled as a, under Medicare Part B insurance for the medical side and Medicare Part D for prescriptions. And now you've got qualified visits coming from a qualified clinic. Um, as part of that, or if you can argue that the visits are occurring through the SNF and the documentations at the SNF, and the SNF, of course, is a qualified um, inpatient unit or in, on the inpatient line of the cost report. So therefore, for the hospital, you would have to be able to state in policy that you consider your SNF as integral um, to your covered entity. Then I think you might have the makings for possibly making that justification of qualifying. So I know that's a long answer, but only because it's so nuanced and there's so many scenarios that you really need to work with your compliance, legal, um, probably ask Apexis answers and, and definitely talk to your consultants about your specific scenarios to see if um, your setup would would make um, the, the risk fairly low um, during a HRSA audit for those not being considered 340B eligible. Great answer. That was a really good unscripted answer, Rob. I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah, that's I haven't thought about that one in a little bit. So when you said you got a tricky one, I was like, oh, no. But yeah, it's uh, sniffs do come up from time to time, and uh, it, they are interesting uh, because because of all everything I just mentioned. Do you have any other thoughts on that? I know I know you're not supposed to be answering. It's supposed to be no, me, no. But... I, I I agree with everything you say, and you know I'm probably it, it's it's uncommon. I haven't I don't know if I've ever seen the scenario where you described where the the inpatient sniff where it's rolling up on the Medicare cost report. But in most cases, when I've seen that, those admissions are all qualified within policy and procedure as inpatient encounters. So they're not uh, subject to 340B accumulations if they're running mixed use um, inventory, but skilled nursing facilities outside of the hospital. So a non-hospital owned SNF or an independent living facility that has a SNF associated with it, where a um, where primary care is maybe offered by an RHC or uh, an internal medicine department of the hospital. You know, I, I've seen covered entities, you know, you know, 
create a, a process by which prescriptions could potentially qualify from from those visits by virtue of being seen by a 340B covered entity provider out of an ambulatory type of encounter, uh, virtual visit or a remote health visit. So yeah, I everything you said, Rob, I think makes sense and aligns with kind of my thoughts or perspectives on how 340B might intersect with SNF. Not a lot of scenarios where you see it happening or where you would want to do it, but certainly there are going to be scenarios where the potential is there. Yeah, no, definitely agree. It's uh, we don't have a lot of people that do it, but uh, in the right scenario, uh, you know, it can make sense. I, I think I see it more with critical access hospitals because they're the yeah. ones that, especially in rural communities, are kind of providing all the care, right? And and um, and a lot of times yeah, standing up a sniff. You know, you got a doc working out of the RHC, and re and really that's mm -hmm. the the RHC serving as the the primary care provider for that patient, even if they're sitting in a in a skilled bed somewhere offsite at a different different location. The medical decision making is being made by the covered entity, so yep. that seems yep. like a reasonable way to qualify a patient as 340B eligible. Yeah, I just tell people, just be careful of the Medicare Part A component yeah. because you're not really billing those separately and, and they're bundled into that inpatient to Medicare Part A um, payment. So uh, in a lot of cases, I think I see the hospitals providing that through their main pharmacy just under the GPO because they're, you know, they're critical access. So they're GPO based or at least they're not subject to the um, GPO prohibition. And then since the other ones are getting filled differently through Medicare Part D, it kind of, it creates a nice separation for them to identify the difference in filling. Excellent. Well, that's all the Q&A that we have. You want to get into the fill-in-the-blank sentences, uh, the final test here? I, I think so. I think I'm ready. Yeah, you've done great so far. So your your job is safe for the moment, <laughs> Rob, I think. No, we're not going to... No, early retirement. Early forced retirement. <laughs> right. No, not unintentionally, I guess. So, yeah. All right. So 10 uh, GPT created 340B fill in the blank uh, sentences. So um, I'll read the sentence with the blank and you tell me what you think the uh, chat GPT response was and what you think the right response is if they're different. So number one. The 340B program allows eligible healthcare organizations to purchase outpatient drugs at blank prices. 340B ceiling prices or discounted prices? Discounted prices. Good. That's what GPT okay. said. Very good. All right. One for one. Number two, HRSA, which stands for blank, oversees and administers the 340B program. I might get the plurals right here, but the Health Resources and Services Administration? Very good. Yes. Are they both plural? Resources. Yep, both plural. Resources okay. and Services Administration. All right, two for two. Number three, to participate in the 340B program, 340B covered entities must serve a significant number of blank patients. Medicaid. And, and um, dual Less, LO or SSI patients. Yeah, you're, you're given, I think, a more specific response. ChatGPT said vulnerable or uninsured. Oh. Sorry. There's no, that's okay. But that's more part of the yeah, intent or, uh, part, okay. Yeah, I would, I would have said no, because what's the question again? So to participate in the 340B program, covered entities must serve a significant number of blank patients. Yeah, I, I, I think specifically, right, to participate, if you're talking about participation, not, not who the program is designed, you know, to support, but I think you, yep. it's actually should be more tied to the dish percentage, but you do have yep. grantees, um, and which would probably make their answer actually a little bit more broad, broadly applicable. Yep. I think both answers are, are correct, so. All right, good. Number four, the primary goal of the 340B program is to improve access to affordable blank 
for underserved populations? I would say affordable care, um, specifically medication, but I'd say affordable care for those populations because right, it's more yeah. broad than just drugs. GPT said medications, but I think care or medications probably is is both. They're both correct. So I give you a lot of credit. This is hard, Rob. I'm I'm a I'm more of like a visual like learner. So not having these actually in front of you, you're doing pretty good. So I need to be actually reading the statement to to maybe it's because I'm a bad listener. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I'm impressed. All right, number five. GPO prohibition in the 340B program prevents covered entities from using blank pricing for 340B eligible patients. Uh, GPO pricing yeah. or GPO like pricing? The answer is right in the in the statement there. Yeah, that's, that was a leading the witness type of question. It is. Yeah. Good. All right. Number six. The ceiling price is the maximum amount that drug manufacturers can charge 340B covered entities for blank. Covered outpatient drugs. Yes. Good. Number seven, off-site locations of a 340B hospital or entity that are eligible to purchase 340B drugs are known as blank. What is child sites? Very good. If it's a grantee, what do we call them? Oh, crap. Um, it, we, we used to use associated sites, but I think we just... Um, we used to use child sites, but now we use associated sites for grantees. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good. All right, number eight. The Office of Blank plays a crucial role in maintaining the 340B program's integrity and compliance. Pharmacy Affairs. Very good. Number nine, HRSA conducts regular blank of covered entities to ensure program compliance. Uh, audits, but they might have more words. Um, no, audits is it. Yeah, you got okay. it. Audits. All right. And the last one, number 10, the blank simplifies the procurement process and helps covered entities access 340B drugs at discounted prices. Oh my gosh. Third party administrator? Uh, no, but you're close. I wouldn't have gotten this one. So Okay. Say it one more time. So the blank simplifies the procurement process for covered entities and helps them access 340B drugs at discounted prices. The prime vendor of Texas. Very good. Yeah. 340B PVP. Good. That's it. You did very good. Ooh, that I last one, I was like, wait, it's not TPAs. Who is it? <laughs> very good. Well, again, your job is safe, Rob. I don't think ChatGPT is going to take over 340B support from Spendman right now. So uh, live to audit another day. Yes. Good, because I got to audit next week. Yeah. All right. Well, this is well, fun. fun. I, yeah. I feel better that now we got through it. Seriously, everyone, I have nothing in front of me. I literally, uh, and we decide we're going to do it pure code, and uh, it, it was it got my it got my nerves up uh, I, for sure. So that that, was, I, that wasn't I, too bad. I wanted to give you the questions ahead of time, and Aiden specifically said no. Rob needs to do this blindly. So you know, um, I used to like Aiden. I used to like her a lot. Um, I'm gonna have to question that now. I know she's listening. She is listening. So, but Rob, you're always a good sport and always appreciate the the insight that you share. So thanks for doing this. Um, I think that's it for us this week, everyone. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Thanks again for listening. See you, Rob. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. See you, Greg. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.